Elvis. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. I've got a longing away down in my heart for that old gang that has drifted apart. The stories about Alex Rocco are insane. He stumbled into a second life as a Hollywood character actor despite his criminal past. A past in which he ran with the Winter Hill Gang, one of Greater Boston's most notorious organized crime families. He was a bookie. He went to jail for registering bets and then again for his part in a brawl at a diner. He was said to have been present when a brutal assault on Salisbury Beach kicked off a violent gang war. His wife was nearly killed when a car bomb intended for someone else went off while she was behind the wheel. He was the getaway driver for a brazen gangland assassination committed in broad daylight, a murder which, despite being seen by upwards of 100 people, had no witnesses. Alex Rocco's story is one of the most improbable in Hollywood history. He ran from his past and found a new future out west where he made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of the Shanning Four performing That Old Gang of Mine in 1923. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. And why would I play you that specific slice of I buy you out, you don't buy me out, cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on March 24th, 1972. And that was the first day that audiences unknowingly watched a real gangster play a fictional gangster on the big screen. On this episode, registering bets, a violent gang war, car bombs, assassinations, an improbable Hollywood story, and Alex Rocco. I'm Jake Brennan. And this is Badlands, Season 9, Hollywoodland. Labor Day, 1961, Boston, Massachusetts. Georgie McLaughlin was in the ICU, sent there because he couldn't keep his greedy hands to himself. Hands that he put all over a girl at a rented cottage on Salisbury Beach. A girl who was dating one of the guys from the Winter Hill Gang. And so, in turn, those guys from the Winter Hill Gang put their hands all over Georgie McLaughlin. Big, fleshy, Irish and Italian hands, knuckles of cracked leather. Those hands beat Georgie to within an inch of his life, until his nose looked like a rotten peach and blood oozed from between the cracks in his teeth. Georgie's brother Bernie was beside himself. So what if Georgie got a little touchy-feely? It didn't warrant this, to render a man practically unrecognizable. It was dishonorable. It was wrong. And Bernie McLaughlin wanted it made right. So he decided to pay a visit to Buddy McLean. Now, you didn't approach Buddy McLean with just any grievance, just like you didn't sit on Buddy McLean's bar stool at the Tap Royal over on Broadway if you walked in on a weeknight and just so happened to find it empty. It was a matter of respect. 
James J. Buddy McLean didn't call himself the Godfather, but he was the Godfather all the same. He was a longshoreman and a racketeer, but most importantly, he ran the Winterhill Gang in the working class Boston suburb of Somerville, and he ran it as he saw fit, which is to say he ran it fairly. And running North Boston's largest organized crime outfit fairly got you the respect of just about everyone. So if you came to his bar or to his home, hat in hand, about to ask a favor, it better be good and fair, because anything else was just a waste of time. One month after Georgie McLaughlin caught that beating, and just one day after he was released from the hospital, Georgie's brother Bernie showed up at Buddy McLean's place. He asked the godfather of North Boston a favor. I want them dead. All those fucks that beat up my brother. I can't give you permission for that. Permission? Who said anything about permission? I want you to help me set it up. Buddy shook his head. He wasn't setting up anything, and he wasn't about to give up his guys. Georgie McLaughlin got what was coming to him, and that was that. Bernie couldn't believe it. The McLaughlin boys weren't Buddy McLean. Nobody was, but they were powerful and respected enforcers in Boston's criminal underworld nonetheless. And to be dismissed like, well, like they were less than, it was an insult to the highest order. Bernie spat on Buddy McLean's floor and left. Later that night, Buddy watched from inside his house as two men loitered around his parked car. He picked up his 38, opened the front door and fired a warning shot. The guys scattered like back bay rats, but something wasn't right, something was up. Buddy walked to the car and gave it a once over, the seats, the undercarriage, then he lifted up the hood. There in the car's guts, a makeshift bomb was wired to the ignition. He knew the score then and there. Bernie and Georgie McLaughlin felt they had been disrespected. They were out for vengeance, an eye for an eye. And they wouldn't be satisfied until Buddy McLean and his Winterhill guys were all dead. Alessandro Federico Petricone Jr., AKA Bobo, was one of those Winterhill guys. He may have helped to beat the piss out of Georgie McLaughlin. He may have even been the boyfriend of the girl that Georgie put his dirty mitts all over. But Bobo wasn't talking. He didn't need the McLaughlins knowing the intimate details of his day to day. He was loyal to Buddy, loyal to the gang. They were family and he never took sides against the family. What Bobo did take were bets. Suffolk Downs, the Celtics, the Sox, those degenerate bums. Takes one to know one, degenerate that is. Bobo knew it was a degenerate life, but it was a good life. Sit down at the bar or the donut shop first thing and lay out the spread. Calculate the odds, take the bets, keep book by writing the numbers down on sticks of gum, never on paper. That way, if some cop with a Kennedy complex feels like raiding the place, he can chew the gum and the numbers disappear. Keep the cash stuffed inside your two-year-old sock. No one's ever gonna suspect a toddler. End of the week, empty the sock, put the cash in a brown paper bag, head over to pal Joey's, walk past the bar or to the back room where Buddy's waiting for his cut. That's how Bobo earned his respect from Buddy McLean, his work ethic a skill taught to him firsthand by his father. Alessandro Petricon Sr. came to this country under the cover of darkness, not because he wanted to, but because he had to, because of what he did back in the home country, back in Gaeta, south of Rome along the Italian coast. Sliced a man's throat from ear to ear, payback for the unspeakable things the man had done to a girl. Even as the cops arrested him, they respected Alessandro for what he'd done. 
so did the town mayor. He came to Alessandro one night in his cell, warned him that the family of the man he'd killed was coming for him. He had to leave, so Alessandro fled, all the way to Ellis Island, where they gave him a new name, Sam. From there, he made his way to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where nearly reborn Sam Petricone started a family, launched a business selling oil, and worked on grabbing a piece of the American dream. If someone tried to interfere with that dream, like the dirty cop who liked to stop by Sam's store and take money from the till in the name of protection, well, Sam had a solution for that. Five solutions, actually. Five fingers that formed a fist. Sam found that smug prick directing traffic in the middle of town, walked right up to him, and in broad daylight, in front of the whole neighborhood, Sam punched the cop right in his smug prick face. Dirty cocksucker never stuck his hand in Sam's money again. And Sam made sure his son saw the whole thing. Because this wasn't just about keeping all your hard-earned money. It was about keeping your hard-earned respect. A man does what he has to do. That was the lesson. But in Bobo's eyes, doing what had to be done didn't have to be this difficult. Just look at his old man working his ass off to provide. Working with oil day in and day out. Oil that stained his hands. Oil that stained his lungs. And for what? To fight and claw just so he could keep what was rightfully his to protect his name? Only to die when the very thing he worked with poisoned his body. Bo knew there was an easier way. It wasn't oil. It wasn't school. He dropped out in the ninth grade and went to where the action was. Loan sharking, bookmaking, drugs, Winter Hill, Buddy McLean. It was a degenerate life, a good life, a life so good that other guys wanted it. Guys like Bernie and Georgie McLaughlin. They wanted your stature, your reputation, your girl, your money. The trick was to do what you had to do, what a man has to do, and do it before they do it to you first. If, like me, you're a child of the 1970s, then you know who Alex Rocco is. Maybe you don't know him by name, and maybe you've never even heard his name in your life until this podcast, but his face is likely burned into some recessed corner of your memory. Because on TV in the 1970s and 1980s, Alex Rocco was everywhere. The Facts of Life, Chips, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Golden Girls, The A-Team. He was a pop culture zealot. And furthermore, if you're a fan of Francis Ford Coppola's 1972 masterpiece, The Godfather, you know, the first truly great film, then you know Alex Rocco as Mo Green, the mobster who partners with the Corleone family in Las Vegas, slaps Fredo around a little, and made his bones while you were going out with cheerleaders. More on that later. Long before Alex Rocco was Mo Green, however, and long before he was a staple on TV sitcoms and Coppola films, Alex Rocco wasn't even Alex Rocco. He was still Alessandro Petricone Jr., AKA Bobo Petricone, AKA a bookmaker in the notorious Winter Hill Gang out of Somerville, Massachusetts, 
the guy who may or may not have been the reason that Bernie McLaughlin went to the gang's leader, Buddy McLean, and asked for retribution for the violent attack on his brother. And now, on Halloween of 1961, nearly two months after that attack and one day after Buddy's refusal to do Bernie that favor, a refusal that earned Buddy a bomb under the hood of his car, Bobo Petricone was sitting in the driver's seat of a black Oldsmobile, hands on the wheel at 10 and 2. It was 12 noon, sharp. He wasn't in Somerville. He was due east in Charlestown, parked across the street from a bar called the Morning Glory. Cars rattled across the Mystic River Bridge above. Somewhere nearby, the Bunker Hill Monument defied gravity and pointed its granite cock to the heavens. Bo looked around. Charlestown was a lot like Somerville. Dirty, dangerous, just beyond the purview of urban renewal. He listened to the Oldsmobile idle. Buddy McLean sat next to him in the passenger seat. They both knew that Bernie McLaughlin was inside the morning glory, holding court like he always did, buying around for that tuned-up dumb ship brother of his, disparaging the good name of the Winterhill boys. Buddy had to take care of the situation. He was lucky the first time a bomb showed up in his car. He wouldn't be so lucky the next time. Bernie McLaughlin was a scourge, a pestilence. The front door of the morning glory opened and that pestilence came walking out and stopped beneath the Schlitz beer sign attached to the building. Buddy had a rid Boston of that pestilence before it spread and took them all out. He checked to make sure his pistol had bullets and told Bobo to keep watch, keep the car running. Buddy opened the door and stepped outside. Bobo braced himself. Once Buddy did what he had to do, it would be Bobo's turn to act, and he would have to act fast. Bobo, or Bo as he was sometimes called, was fast when he needed to be. You learned that early on. If you weren't quick, you were dead. Sometimes he was too fast. He probably shouldn't have married that girl right away. In a perfect world, he would have taken things slow, gotten to know her better. But he knocked her up, and getting hitched seemed like the honorable thing to do. When it came to honor, she didn't think what Bo did for a living had any. She tried to stop him from going out with Buddy and the boys, but she couldn't stop him and she couldn't understand. This was who he was. This was what he did. He was a high school dropout, zero prospects. But when it came to the books, he was good, damn good. He had a quick wit and quicker reflexes. He was even quick to the punch when shit went down at a Somerville diner and the Greasy Spoon's 65-year-old proprietor needed some roughing up. There were times, however, though, when he was beaten to the punch. Like two years prior, in 1959, when Somerville PD did a sweep of the local bars. Bo never saw them coming. Nobody did. The front door of the joint swung wide open, and the light from outside flooded the interior exposing the things that lived in the dark. Gamblers, debtors, sharks, grade-A fuck-ups looking for the next opportunity to get unfucked, all huddled within cheap wood paneling and around beer-stained countertops. The cops swarmed inside and started knocking heads. Bo didn't even have time to stick his gum in his mouth. He was exactly who they were looking for. Any guy associated with Buddy McLean was on their list. Didn't matter that half the force was in the gang's pocket. This was outward-facing shit. It was all about how things looked. And Bobo Petricone, known associate of the criminal underworld, sitting at the end of the bar like he owned the place, and that wasn't a good look. He was sent to Bill Ricca for bookmaking. 
His father was long dead, so he called his mother from inside the pen. She knew the judge, she could help, and she did want to help. But in her mind, the best way to help her son was to stay out of it and let the justice system do its thing. Let her boy serve his entire one year sentence. If she meddled and got his time reduced, all that meant was that he'd reunite with the Winterhell gang sooner than later. And just like Bo's wife, Bo's mother didn't want her son anywhere near those hooligans. God only knows the kind of trouble they were getting into. She'd heard all the rumors, not just that Buddy McLean's crew took bets and made loans and cooked books, but that they were capable of so much more, even murder. Buddy McLean fired four times into the back of Bernie McLaughlin's head, right behind that Schlitz sign hanging off the front of the morning glory in front of many witnesses, both inside and outside the bar. Bernie's body dropped to the ground and his brain spilled out into the cracks in the sidewalk. Sitting behind the wheel of the black Oldsmobile, Bobo put his foot on the brake and shifted the car into drive. The engine rumbled low, traffic was light. Kids wouldn't be trick-or-treating for another five, six hours easy. Getting back to Somerville would be a cinch, just as long as Buddy put his ass in motion. And Buddy was in motion. He was running towards the car, running like a man who just erased the pestilence from this world, running like a man who just committed murder one. He jumped into the passenger seat. Bo floored it. He was fast, he was capable. And for that, he had Buddy McLean's respect. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Hey guys, I just moved. It was hectic. I've talked about it a little bit. It was, it, it's still hectic. And we all have hectic things that are keeping us up at night. We all have stress in our lives that messes up our routines. That's why I'm excited to talk to you again about Next Evo Naturals. I've had positive experience with CBD in the past, but I also know that not all CBD products are the same. It really matters what you're using and the quality of the CBD that you're getting. Regular CBD oil just does not mix with your water-based body. That's why Next Evo Naturals develops SmartSorb technology. It's clinically proven to help your body absorb CBD four times better than regular CBD oil. So when you need to de-stress, when you need to sleep better this fall, maybe you're stressed out, you got we had two parent-teachers conferences today, completely messed up my schedule. I was worried about it all night. Dipped into my Next Evo sleep support complex last night, had me sleeping like a baby. This product combines premium CBD with melatonin, and it helped me get a great night of sleep. Okay, I feel like I am back on track. I'm able to knock out three bonus episodes today. One day, three bonus episodes. I, I can't do that without a good night's sleep. And I know you guys have things in your life that you need to bang out on a regular basis. You guys are hardworking. You need a good night's sleep. So upgrade to better natural solutions from Next Evo Naturals. Go to nextevo.com and use promo code BADLANDS to get 25% off. That's 25% off at N-E-X-T-E-V-O.com promo code BADLANDS. Supporting our sponsors, it really helps the show out. So hit up nextevo.com and thanks for listening. It's been said that as many as 100 people saw Buddy McLean murder Bernie McLaughlin outside a bar in Charlestown. And while the actual number is probably much lower, the fact of the matter is that the killing was witnessed by many, the majority of whom wouldn't dare rat on the leader of the Winter Hill Gang. 
They either liked him or feared him too much. Probably a little of both, if we're being honest. There was, however, one witness who dared speak up. A waitress who ID'd the shooter and the getaway driver. Buddy and Bobo Petricone were subsequently arrested and formally charged with murder. But the waitress didn't stick by her story very long. She quickly recanted, either due to a change of heart or a visit by an extremely persuasive Winter Hill sympathizer. With no testimony and no probable cause, a grand jury wouldn't indict them. Buddy and Bo were off the hook, but they weren't free. Buddy caught a gun possession charge and was put away for two years, and Bo was sent back to what was then called the Bill Ricca House of Corrections, punishment for his role in the recent brawl at a Somerville diner, the one where the 65-year-old owner was roughed up. Prison time brought little relief for Bo, and it did nothing to quell the gangland tension that was reaching a boiling point out on Boston's streets. The Winter Hill crew slept with one eye open. The McLaughlins didn't forgive, and they sure as shit didn't forget. Bodies dropped, heads rolled, literally. One body was found in the trunk of a car minus the head, which was buried somewhere in the woods. Some other very unlucky guys had a blowtorch held to their genitals before they were choked out and dumped into the harbor. Bad blood ran through the streets between Somerville and Charlestown. Once strong bonds were coming apart at the seams. Everything was falling apart, including Bo's marriage. He knew it was no good, so did she. They were too young, too impulsive. His wife, Grace, always wanted him home and he always wanted to not be home, to be out in the middle of the action, at the bar, in the back room, the room where it happened. Now he was behind bars, again, a room where nothing happened. It made everything worse, his absence, his recidivism. Meanwhile, the life he refused to walk away from brought that gangster shit to their front door and it got Grace involved, which was never his intention. There was nothing he could do about it. That was the worst thing. He was locked up, frightened, in a state of panic when he heard the news. How Grace had taken the car out. Not their car, but Howie's car. Howie Winter, Buddy McLean's right-hand man. Howie had driven over to Bo's place to check in on Grace, because even if Grace didn't agree with her husband's involvement in the gang, she was Bo's wife, which meant she was family, and you never turned your back on family. She asked Howie if she could borrow his car to run some errands. She made it four blocks before the front of the car suddenly erupted in a fireball. The explosion shook the entire vehicle. Shock and terror rippled through her body. The fender was torn apart. The hood of the car went flying and landed in a playground some 100 feet away where children were playing. She wasn't hurt, thank Christ, but she was rattled. So was Bo. He knew that bomb was meant for Howie Winter, not Grace. But it didn't change the fact that his wife was nearly collateral damage in a gang war that seemed to have no end. Leaving the pen only made things worse. Bo was no longer protected by iron bars. He was out there, vulnerable, paranoid. He feared for his life and the lives of his wife and daughter. Simply declaring your allegiance with Buddy McLean or the McLaughlins could earn you a death sentence. Guys were getting popped for less. Bo knew it was only a matter of time before he caught one of those bullets. His days of playing bookie, of taking and placing bets, they were numbered. Living that degenerate life was no longer paying dividends. It didn't pay at all. It was now a game of diminishing returns. A game you couldn't help but lose. 
Boston was no good. Bo's marriage was no good. He had to leave both, hard as it may be. He flipped a coin. Heads, he went to Miami. Tails, California. The coin fell on his palm and he slapped it against the back of his hand. Tails. Alessandro Petricone Jr. left behind Grace, Buddy, all the Winter Hill boys, and headed west. Warren Oates, an up-and-coming Western actor, soon to be one of director Sam Peckinpah's grizzled leading men, walked into the rain check room on Santa Monica Boulevard and ordered a double. He saw his friend, Harry Dean Stanton, also an up-and-coming actor with a few supporting roles under his belt, belly up to the bar. I was at Warner Brothers today and somebody asked about you, Oates said. Stanton knew where this was going, but played along anyway. Who was it? Nobody. Oates and Stanton both laughed. So did all the regulars within earshot. This was their daily routine. Struggling actors circa the early 1960s giving each other shit day after day. It was what you did. The rain check room was full of shit talkers, chain smokers, and hard drinkers. Guys like Oates, Stanton, and Peckinpah. Also, Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, Sally Kellerman, and Bobby Boris Pickett, the guy behind the 1962 number one novelty hit, the Monster Mash. Pickett was from Somerville, Massachusetts. Pickett's roommate, Alex Rocco, tended bar at the rain check to pay the bills. He was a new guy in town. No one really knew his background. They could tell he was from Boston. That much was obvious by his accent, but no one knew his story. They didn't know his real name, Alessandro Petricone Jr., or that he was called Bobo back east, that he'd been a bookie, a getaway driver, that his ex-wife once survived a car bomb, they didn't know that Alex was short for his actual first name, a name that was handed down by one of the most respected men of the old country, or that he'd taken Rocco from a name written on a bakery truck that he passed by every day. They didn't know that Alex Rocco was wiping the slate clean to become a new person. They all just saw a character, a raconteur, a shit talker, one of them. He was a natural. They encouraged him to take acting classes, go to auditions. He couldn't tend bar forever. So fuck it, he thought. The money could be good. At the very least, it was an opportunity to meet a girl. He found an acting coach, a fellow Boston expat named Leonard Nimoy, still a few years from his own breakthrough as Mr. Spock on Star Trek. Nimoy bristled at Rocco's thick Boston accent. That's not how any self-respecting actor spoke. No one could understand him. Nimoy kicked him out, in front of the entire class, humiliated him right in front of 30 people. Rocco was pissed. Who did Nimoy think he was? Fucking uptight West End Boston motherfucker, that's who. The humiliation galvanized him. He took a speech class, learned to mask his accent when needed, and then returned to Nimoy's class to prove himself and get that respect. Pretty soon, the offers trickled in. At first, it was small potatoes, exploitation films, and low-budget fare. But soon, the offers got better, including one offer that he couldn't refuse. On Halloween day of 1965, the same year that Alex Rocco landed his first starring role in a Hollywood movie, back east in Somerville, Massachusetts, shots rang out near the Tap Royal Bar. Inside, 
Buddy McLean's famed barstool was empty. Buddy McLean, recently freed from prison, was bleeding out on the sidewalk, gunned down by his Charlestown rivals, four years to the day since he'd shot Bernie McLaughlin dead in the same manner. The murder of Buddy McLean meant that his number two, Howie Winter, ascended to the head of the Winterhill Gang, a position he held until the late 70s when he went to prison, paving the way for the reign of a gangster by the name of James Whitey Bulger. But that's another story. In Hollywood, Alex Rocco mourned for his old friend, but he didn't mourn for his old life. If he had stayed behind, the chances were very high that he would have suffered a similar fate coming out of a bar or coming out of his house. The McLaughlins would have caught up to him and put a bullet in his brain. But little did Rocco know, in just a few years' time, as his name gained traction around L.A. and he picked up more on-screen work, he would get what Buddy got back in Boston. In his newly adopted town, in his newly adopted line of work, Alex Rocco would get whacked. Francis Ford Coppola's landmark mafia epic, The Godfather, was a critical and commercial smash. Six months after its initial release in March of 1972, it became the biggest grossing film of all time, bigger than Gone with the Wind, which took 33 years to set the previous record. The film single-handedly revived not just Paramount Pictures, but the movie industry at large. A major part of the film's success were the incredible performances by both seasoned and green actors alike. It had Marlon Brando, James Caan, Diane Keaton, Robert Duvall, and a young Al Pacino in a star-making turn. But Coppola wanted the film to feel authentic, from the spectacle of a traditional Italian wedding right down to the ingredients in Clemenza's spaghetti sauce. That meant casting authentic personalities, not just actors. He sought out people with past lives that could have been ripped from the pages of The Godfather's shooting script. And when the film opened in the spring of 1972, moviegoers were transported to another world, a world that felt real. And it felt real because it was real. They had no idea that the guy who played Luca Brasi, Don Corleone's feared hitman, was Lenny Montana, a former wrestler and bodyguard for the Colombo family, fresh out of Rikers Island or that Connie's abusive husband, Carlo, was played by Gianni Russo, one-time errand boy for Luciano family crime boss, Frank Costello. Al Martino, a real-life pruner on Capitol Records, who was once actually extorted by the mafia when they bought out his management contract, played the part of singer Johnny Fontaine. Tony Giorgio, a former circus performer and stage magician, played the part of Bruno Tattaglia. And Alex Rocco, a.k.a. Alessandro Bobo Petricone Jr., former member of the Winter Hill Gang in Boston, played Mo Green, a hot-headed mobster modeled after Bugsy Siegel, who makes a fatal mistake when he challenges Michael Corleone. That mistake catches up to him in the movie's third act, much like the McLaughlins caught up to Buddy McLean. Michael Corleone stands in a church as his godson is baptized his suit pressed and his hair slick. The priest asks if he believes in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And Michael does. The priest asks if he believes in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church. Michael does. The priest asks Michael if he renounces Satan. I do renounce him. Cut to Mo Green lying on his stomach, undressed, a towel over his backside. 
He's getting a massage. He's not wearing his glasses. A man in a suit and hat pushes open the door to the massage room and stands there. Cut to medium shot. Mo doesn't know who this guy is because he can't see anything. He grabs his glasses and puts them on. Cut to close-up of Mo's face. We hear a single gunshot. Mo's glasses crack like a spider's web, and the blood gushes down Mo's nose and chin, dark as Michael Corleone's heart. Mo Green's head slumps forward on the pillow, dead. Alex Rocco's performance and his on-screen death earned him newfound respect. Respect from his peers, from audiences, and from an industry that he was still learning how to navigate. The next year, when he made The Friends of Eddie Coyle, about a gunrunner for the Boston mob who's also a police informant, Rocco gave the film's star, Robert Mitchum, a crash course in his native city. That included an introduction to and a hang session with Howie Winter and the Winterhill Gang, where Mitchum could learn more about how Rocco's art was an imitation of his life. From there, Mitchum could see how Rocco's former life had its own afterlife on the big screen, exactly where it ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands.